0: This is the word of God, amen? I think that last sentence there actually is one where when you, every time you read it, you should say amen. Ty pointed out last week in our part one sort of of this sermon that it's really good that God decided to save the Gentiles because you're probably here today of zero Jewish uh, background, likely. And it's good news for you. He saves Jew and Gentile alike, showing no partiality. This is you know, the second half, if you will. It's kind of the conclusion of what we looked at in all of chapter 10 last week. And there's a lot going on prior. There's a lot here. But if there's one thing that kind of stands out as a theme in this, this section of scripture, it's this, I think, about humans. We're really good across the board. We have an uncanny ability to gripe and complain about something. It's real common to us. Just think about your life and the things you complain about. Traffic, having to work, your boss, something your friend did, something your spouse did, something your kids did, or maybe they're doing them, (laughs) Uh, the heat, gas prices. I mean, I could go on and on. And unchecked by God, the church can fall into such complaining spirits very easily. And that is damaging. But worse is when complainers become complacent and they begin to pick up criticisms. So that was three C's there. Did you hear that? I'm alliterating for you. Complacency, complaining, and criticizing. These are all awful things. No one wants to be around a person like that. Nobody. Nobody wants to be around somebody who's complacent or complaining. But especially out of those three, nobody wants to be around someone who's criticizing. If you find yourself never around anyone that is complacent or complaining or criticizing, look out because you may be that person who is the one who's always complaining and criticizing others. Although our story in Scripture took place over uh, 2,000 or excuse me, almost 2,000 years ago. We see that the early church had its fair share of the same problems and types of people that I've described to you. Critics or people comfortable and complacent following after of God or a name at least, complaining, divisions, critics. What happens in this text, however, should encourage us today. It should challenge us. It should convict us. And have us concluding with them, I hope, in praise for the glorious grace and kindness of our God. Our sermon text today shows gospel clarity and conviction amidst the problem of critics in the early church. In our text today, we will see a clear flow that kind of serves as our outline if you're going to take some notes. Criticism is going to create clarity in the text today. I think that clarity is going to create charity. And then I think charity, as this message is delivered by Peter, creates what's needed, conviction in the community. So that's where we're headed this morning. I want to show you in this passage how in God's church, when criticism is there, Criticism in God's hands can create clarity. Clarity creates a charity in you and I or Peter as we see the church which then should create conviction. Conviction's always good, right? We'll see how it ends. Let's start with this criticism that's creating... Uh, that ends up opening the door for some clarity. Verses one through three. Now, let's do this first, though, before jumping right into the criticisms that you know, these critics right here, this circumcision party, as Dylan just read about uh, in our text, we need to get our bearings about us of what has happened, especially if you weren't here last week. You know, a quick review of Acts 10 is pretty amazing, right? God had a plan, and by this time, if you remember last week, you're worn out by what was just read because you've heard it recounted now three times. It's been very clear what God has done. God has simultaneously in two locations on the earth, in Caesarea and in Joppa, appeared to people. He appeared to a Gentile centurion warrior of Rome that was named Cornelius, a God-fearer who was not a Christian. He was a Gentile in every sense of the word. He was not circumcised. He had not done the full proselytization process. He was simply maybe an observer who had peace with God through almsgiving and through recognizing that Yahweh had, was, was God. That's it. So God had done a lot in his past to bring him to that point, but he is not a Christian. And God reveals himself to him in an angel. He says, hey, you need to send for a guy named Peter. And at the same time that that was happening, here's Peter over here, the apostle, the disciple of Christ, the spokesman at times for the disciples, sitting there um, having you know uh, three times a day trying to follow maybe as a good Jew would, a prayer, a habit of prayer. He's meeting God on the roof of a house. um, And yet he's in a house, Simon the Tanner, Remember we talked about last week, he's almost breaking maybe or at least being a little risky where he's staying because as a Jew, he was not to touch a dead animal or really associate with somebody who would work with hides like a tanner would. And yet Peter finds himself there. He's praying and God shows up in a vision. In this vision though, God brings down from heaven a blanket three times filled with animals and he tells Peter to eat them. Upon which Peter is, as you just heard, no. (laughs) But God says, I show no partiality. What happens God brings this vision and says, Peter, there's men coming for you. Go with them. Peter obeys God, and he does the unthinkable. He goes into the home of a Gentile. He crosses that barrier. He makes it known. You know I would not even be here, he had said in 10. And, and he asks, why then have I come? And Cornelius tells him, you're supposed to tell me something. And that something was the good news of the gospel, That God saves to the uttermost those who repent and place their faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the Spirit of God falls on the Gentiles, Cornelius' entire household. They profess faith in Christ, showing that they've been regenerate. They're new creatures in Christ. They are baptized. And man, what has God done? He has now brought in to his fold, to his family, the people for the longest time were to be thought of as cut off and accursed. The Gentiles, people who would not have been raised or steeped in the Jewish faith, maybe at all we're gonna see, are now have a full access to believing in the hope of God. That's what happened in 10. This was such a big deal that word spread and it spread fast from Caesarea, Cornelius' home. Before long, everyone in the area of Judea and Jerusalem know it. Look at verse one it's gotten all the way back to Jerusalem. There they are, the apostles, the other men that have been appointed by God and Matthias, I'm sure, among them, the 11 now. And the brothers, that is brothers and sisters, that is actually implying a big group here throughout all Judea, they have heard what? The Gentiles had received the word of God. Now, as you read and heard read in verse 1, before there's criticism, you need to see that the word has spread. The news of Cornelius, the news of his entire household being saved. It's a big enough deal that it, that it beats Peter back to Jerusalem, it seems. That's serious gossip, right? I mean, that, 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 that's fast moving. Peter shows up and, and the fellow apostles are there. And, and, and what happens is that there is this group that appears, this criticizing group. Now, it's unfair and forcing to say that the only thing that's shared about this amazing breakthrough by God's spirit to save Gentiles was ugly gossip concerning Peter's actions by this group. That's unfair to the text. In other words, you know, there was certainly on the part of the apostles, and I think many brothers and sisters, there was probably a true excitement upon receiving this news, and, and honestly, some praising of God for their reaction. But if it was present prior to Peter's boldness in this passage, we don't know about it. Because what we do know is this, the criticism in our texts seems to be rooted in these rumors. Verse one, the Gentiles are saved. Verse two, and what happens? There's this issue. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, he gets there, it's this circumcision party criticizing him. So the first reaction we see in the church, if there was something else, is not good. It's bad. It's not a rejoicing, it's a criticizing. I think we learn something here about the nature of most ungodly and sinful criticism. I think often that ungodly criticism—people being, you know, quick to judge or show partiality or be a bigot about their faith—I think it's rooted often in in gossip of some form. They don't have all the facts. Oftentimes, people, you know, we gossip because we seek to preserve insecurity in ourselves. Or maybe we promote the agenda of uh, somebody else, another person. Gossip's all about pride and superiority. And so though this great thing happens in Caesarea, by the time Peter gets there, Luke wants us to see that the Jerusalem church had more concern about the gossiping side of what has happened among Gentiles rather than the glory side of what has happened among Gentiles. This is a problem. I mean, just think. The apostles, the followers of Christ, what do they do with this information? We really don't know their initial reaction because Luke wants us to see that primarily and loudly and sinfully a spirit, lower S, spirit, an evil thinking of the circumcision party rises to the first line item on the agenda of the Jerusalem church. Hold on a second. God has saved these God, Peter, you, you were among these? Look at verse 2 and 3. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, that party criticized him. Now, we need to be, excuse me, we, we do not need to be careful at all about what is being said here. Luke makes it very clear. So whether we think that early church had a good reaction, partly, and then these guys showed up or not, we don't know. Luke says, this is very clear. The word in your Bible that they're translated criticize, it has about six possible meanings, in the, in the Greek New Testament, it gets translated, how it's represented. This is the harshest way it can be used, right here, in this verse. Uh, it can mean to evaluate carefully. Uh, it can, this word, criticize, it can mean to, to prefer and to maybe have a good preference. It can also mean to make a distinction, kind of parse out some differences. Or maybe even to doubt. It's used in those ways. But in the cha- let me give you an example. So in the chapter before, God uses this word when he told Peter, when he says to him about going to Cornelius, he says, make no hesitation. The word there is the same word here for criticize. It's just in a different tense. And so it's, it means this idea, hey, God's saying, look, I see this hesitation in you, Peter, but don't be hesitant, go. And he goes, it's different, however, here. In this text, it is to criticize harshly, to express disapproval. Verse three is not a question in these men about what happened. It's a statement. A statement steeped in criticism. And underneath that, this criticism is a very nasty problem. Notice the text calls this group of criticizing leaders the circumcision party. You see that there in the text. Among the Christians in Jerusalem we learn, are some men who are saying they are Jewish Christians. They're not happy with just saying they're Christians now. They are trying to say they are Jewish Christians. A very dangerous thing is beginning to happen in the New Testament church here. They're seeking to claim Christ, but they want to add to the saving faith of the gospel a sinful divide between Jew and Gentile. They want to take a label of Jewish and put it on the front of their Christianity. Does that sound familiar? is unwise at best. It is possibly and most likely sinful to label oneself a blank Christian. When you begin to use descriptors before Christianity to talk about your Christianity, you may not be talking about Christianity anymore. It is a very dangerous criticism that is beginning to crop up in the New Testament church. Let me give you a list of some today that may make you think about possible issues that we see. I have heard people today say they are cowboy Christians, or white Christians, or black Christians, or gay Christians, or any other descriptor Christian. It's like that. I think you get the point by me saying that. Our issues today are as old as the church's first years. Think about it like this. Our prejudices today, they're as evil, as ugly, as ungospel centered if we bring them into the church as they were 50 years ago, as they were 500 years ago, civil rights, reformation, as they were 2,000 years ago, here, God saves the Gentiles. You went and ate with those people? Do you know? We Jewish Christians, do you know anything? It's hatred. Stated very simply for you to fully understand, these men are more interested in an ethnically religious state of christianity than they are true christianity that's what they're in. that's what they're, that's what's at the heart of this assumption in their criticism they want ethnic purity they can't see these gentiles the way god sees them this is ugly right i mean that is a problem it's a nasty evil sadly it will plague the church beyond this correction we see next But, you know, God works all things for his glory, and the church is good, right? Is that an amen moment, right? I mean, he does. So despite this criticism, which leads way to a lot of, honestly, racism and difficulty and ethnic hatred in the New Testament that the rest of the Bible unpacks, Jew and Gentile divided, and we get so much rich theology that we can apply to our 500 years ago, 50 years ago, and today. What is amazing is that God can work such Jewish Christians present in the church. He can do that for his glory and the church is good. There's no exception here in this text. So though this harsh criticism really steeped in ethnic hatred appears first in the hearts of these possible believers, God will work through it Uh, and he'll work through Peter to correct it. That's our next point. So in the hands of men, uh, you know, this criticism would only create problems, but I want to argue that, you know, point one is criticism creates clarity. So in the actual church, I think, think, you know, criticism, wherever its origin is, God can use it to create clarity. Now, I wanted to give a quick side note before moving on. I want to make sure you hear me say, I said possible believers just now, and I said that intentionally about these men. We don't know if these early examples of Jews who reject the gospel, you know, going to the Gentiles, we don't know if they're saved um, or not, because our story ends with approval and unity among the majority. Uh, We know future issues are going to appear on these same lines with great uh, great clarity. The word of God is going to condemn many of this party, this circumcision party. I mean, just go read the book of Galatians to see that. They are cursed by God to think they could add to the gospel but I just want to clarify here that you know, they're possibly believers. I just throw that out there because I, I threw some big categories that I'm not choosing to get into today about white Christianity or black Christianity or gay Christianity, right? I want you to see here that it will get clear when it needs to get clear. Anathema, curse, does come for such approaches to something Christianity, But it comes through a very careful, lengthy process. We'll see a lot of it in the book of Acts at Acts 15 soon, where they're diving into it. You'll see even more in the New Testament. Just think about that as you approach people, that you would love to take their criticism and turn it into some clarity. Just be careful, right? Peter is. So I say that as a caveat to say, I do think God uses this awful, horrible hatred uh, uh, and criticism here to bring clarity and leads us to point two, which is the main portion of the text, Peter's Peter's defense. Clarity, then, is gonna create charity. Let me show you. So, So if criticism created the clarity, we see in verses five through 16 here that that clarity is gonna create charity or did. So, you know, clarity, I'm referring to Peter's recounting this to them. He does it in patient love. And then charity, I want to show you referring to the the final result that we'll see in our final point today. But the charity goes directly with the last point. They're both in Peter. So Peter shows clarity and charity in the way that he delivers his defense. Now, this is the longest portion of the text this morning, and really, it's just Peter recounting again what happened with Cornelius. Now, Luke is Greek, you know, in his background, himself, like, he's got at least a lot of connections, we know, with the Greek world, and he writes his gospel and Acts as a kind of a good go-to for Greeks that could really understand a Christian history, and so he represents history well by a lot of this repetition. The Greeks had that. They had, I mean, you read Homer, you read any of their ancient works, and there's a lot of repetition. And it's because so much is passed down orally, it. So that's one aspect of why Luke wants to do this. He wants to solidify in a Greek Christian, right? Somebody who's coming from that background. He wants to really show, despite this criticism, keep looking over and over again. Who sent the vision from heaven? God did. Who saved the Gentiles? God did. So there's some confidence there, but what I really think is happening as Peter gives this and Luke knows this, there's a dual reason, and this is what I think is happening here. At this point, the Bible's explained this account, you know, two now three times, and you know, the way that Peter says it is really amazing because I think he's doing it in such a way that it would actually appeal to these critics, so let me let me try to show you so what's the deal you know uh, does the Bible just you know think that uh, so surely Peter here we go sorry surely peter is 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 you know bored of telling this, we may think he's sick of having to be the voice of clarity and reason, maybe, but you know we may feel that way on repeat, but not him. How does he offer such clarity concerning the gospel? without just getting frustrated, right? How does he not just throw his hands up and just look at these men and say, just get out of the church or just leave us alone? Like, if you think this is a problem, just go over there. Like, why doesn't he choose those things? How instead does he do it? Well, I want you to see his report gives evidence of how. Okay, look at verse 6. In verse 6, Peter is recounting, right? So he's already began in 5, telling what happened in Joppa, sees the vision, but now in verse six, he says, looking at it closely. So this is him. He's saying, me, looking at it closely, I observed. And he says, animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, I want to tell you if, you, if you paid attention yes, uh, last week to the text read or if you've been reading the text, this is different from the previous accounts just slightly, So here Luke reports that Peter now gives four categories of animals in this vision, right? Here it's animals and uh, he adds beasts of prey. So animals is like domestic animals and then beasts of prey would be like wild animals and then of course these, you know, the last there, the reptiles and the birds of the air. Now doing so, as he does this, as he makes his defense, I think he's giving to the Jewish circumcision party directly, something directly in line with what they would know in the creation account. You see, in Acts 10, when it was happening between him and Cornelius, it was just these three. It was animals and then, you know, reptiles and birds But now Peter, as he's journeyed and as he's shown up and as he's now giving a defense, he grabs more literal to the Genesis text, the four categories that God set out in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, as God said it, so Peter has said it here, it's animals and wild beasts and the reptiles and the birds of the air that God filled in his earth and it was good before the fall. And he hits this Genesis note with the utmost subtlety, I think, but intentionally to show them in God's vision, God has not contradicted what he said in the very beginning. He's beginning to fulfill it. You know a God who filled the world perfectly. And before sin, the reptile and the wild beast and the animals that were unclean that you think defile you, God is the only one who can set them apart as clean. Even in this verse six, in the way he recounts it, I think he's beginning to make a defense, one that sounds it. Look at verse eight. There's another reason why I say this. In verse eight, Peter recounts in this summary, he says, but I said to God, when he told me to get up and eat these animals, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now here, Luke reports that Peter now speaks This sentence of his initial refusal, he does it with even more clarity. Turn back to 10.14. In 10.14, which is the vision if you're looking in your Bible, this is the first time it's happening. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, verse in chapter 10. But now here, as he's recounting it sometime later, listen to his rhetoric. By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Why the difference? Well, first of all, in 10, it was already paralleling an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel, okay? Already in chapter 10, the first time it happened. But now the wording in verse eight is even closer to the words of an Old Testament passage In Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 14, Ezekiel speaks to God in that passage, just like Peter speaks to God in his vision. And Ezekiel is trying to push back against God's will, which he's learning in Ezekiel's day is immense judgment and pain brought on the people of Israel because they're behaving like the pagans. That's the message to Ezekiel. And in that message of judgment, you know what Ezekiel says? Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 4.14. Then I, Ezekiel, said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. It's never entered my mouth. Like Peter, every Good scholar, every Jewish Christian that he's giving a defense to today, if they've known Ezekiel, they would know that, like Peter and like he'll testify to, Ezekiel is rebuked by God for his pride. When Ezekiel says that to God, he's told after that that he will eat dung. That's Ezekiel 4 for thinking he can presume on the knowledge of God. He and the people of Israel can eat dung. You can check. Uh, that clarity from God on your own later. But the point is clear, isn't it? Here's my point. Peter got the message even when his own bigotry was vying for center stage. And so as he's thought about it, from 10, where he was admitting, I've never done anything common or unclean, he sees now that he's actually, when he thought that way, was on par with Ezekiel. Ezekiel, who said, nor has tainted meat ever come into my mouth. Do you hear the pride in it? And Peter, now defending it, chooses to use these words. Now he shares absolute clarity, I think, in hopes that their, that theirs, their bigotry will die the death of sanctification that it should. If they are in Christ, these you know, Jewish Christians who are bringing this criticism, they will hear the clarity and they will hear the charity of this. So a certain clarity is appearing in this account, right? I hope you see it's biblical. He's more like Genesis now before them, which they love and know and believe. He's more like Ezekiel now in his recitation of this. He wants these guys to repent. He's speaking clearly. But you know what? If that didn't make it clear to them, his summary gets even clearer with one more biblical quote, didn't it? What's the last biblical quote that he gives? Look at verse 15 and 16. As I began to speak, Peter said, The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning and I remembered. Do you see that? I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, that's Jesus Christ, by the way. John baptized with water, Peter, (laughs) disciple, Christian, church, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, my spirit, the spirit of God. If the Genesis reminder or the Ezekiel connection were not clear enough to these Jewish Christians that they are treading on dangerous ground, then the words of Jesus must be. Peter is not wasting words, is he? Clarity and charity. Peter is literally self-deprecating, right? He's saying, I had this bigotry in me three times, three times, three times. I had to be told to rise and eat. I had to go there and put myself in that place. And even there, he came in like Jonah came into Nineveh, right? He's like, hey, I do have a message for y'all. But first, no, you you know how I shouldn't be here. You know I shouldn't be among you unclean Gentiles. And that's a nice way of saying you're cursed and I'm not. It's bigotry, But he sat it aside and he's, now he's testifying to these guys. Look what I remembered in that moment. I remembered the words of Jesus Christ. I remembered the inheritance that I had. I remembered that though I wanted to stand on a pedestal at the cross, I had to be humbled three times and stand a little bit ways back like that poor sinner outside of the temple begging God to forgive me. And he did. <laughs> he did baptized by fire, his Holy Spirit, I remembered the Lord. I remember there was no partiality. Peter's clear. They were transformed at the preaching of the gospel by the power of God that day in Cornelius' house. Peter held out before them what it means to repent and believe, and these people repented, and they believed, and it's just like him. It's not so hard to see that there is very little difference between the sinful nature of these Gentiles and the sinful nature of these Jews. And it was the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that sealed the deal and settled the issue for all. And it'll continue to be that every time. I don't care what the division or the schism or the promise of, of hatred for one another is. As soon as people show up in the church saying, I'm this kind of Christian, it must be Jesus Christ and the gospel and the truth of him that will squash that and bring everything on level ground. Has to, and it does here. Their criticism actually produces clarity in Peter and a, and a charity in him. That's the whole idea of him saying, I was just like you. I was like Ezekiel. I thought I understood the, the Bible, but look, we see that Peter defends the truth that God saves Jew and Gentile in these three uh, clear signs on his account, right? So I've shown you Genesis reminder, Ezekiel reaction, and the rebuke by God to him, and then the personal remembering of what Jesus had said. Now, let's apply this before we move to our final point uh, this morning. How is Peter an example to you? How can you gain clarity and charity in the way you interact with people? Now, let me be honest. Let me ask you to be honest. Some of us may possess the same bigotry or a variation of it today like these Jews. Or like these Christians, I should say. You believe in Christ. You know explicitly that it's wrong. But often, I bet your life is comfortably separated from anyone who maybe would rub you the wrong way. There can be wisdom in knowing your own immaturity. That you maybe seek to kind of stay away from people that you know would rub you the wrong way. But it is a very limited wisdom. Oftentimes, in the name of wisdom, Christians will carve out space to live comfortably and not live biblically next to people that they don't really like. And it's oftentimes because we have underneath the skin of our hearts dwelling sin. We hold on to some bigotry. Lost people maybe that you can't stand personally just seem to always be out of your path. Maybe you're here today and you do build your life for this comfort. You don't realize it until an opportunity is right in front of you. Until some gossip hits you from Caesarea. You didn't realize just how Jewish your Christian identity was. This happens to us. A situation like our text gets presented to you, then you're confronted. Man, there's still, at times, ugly partiality within me. Maybe the text should convict you in this way. I think Peter is an example of this. Me and you are all guilty of this. Let me give you a quick story. This weekend we were hiking. And uh, we were going to go hiking. We had a plan to get there and get in on a certain time. And we show up in the rain, and there's these two guys who approach the car, and they're in a bad way. One of them had a heat stroke, and his knee was bummed out, and his buddy was trying to get him to help, and they had seven miles to go in the rain on, that, on Thursday morning this week. And I, 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 I can speak for myself alone, and when those guys came to the car, he, this guy leapt when he saw our car. He hadn't seen people. It was obvious. He left. He came to the window. He was like, man, y'all got to help me. I'm in a bond, and I promise I'm not crazy. I'm not going to hurt you. And my initial reaction was, he's going to hurt us. It really was. I mean, my initial reaction, it was not compassion. It was not care. It was not anything about his soul. It was, this guy may be a threat to me. I thought, that's okay though, because I have a wife and kids. I didn't think that way. And I kept pressing that. And then I thought, secondly, this is real ugly. Let's be honest. I thought we're going gonna, gonna, gonna to have to be like an hour and a half behind now on a schedule that I want to end on a Saturday where I can get back home to see my wife and kids and, you know, have some time before Sunday. And this guy, this problem is now going to, you know, it's going to throw that off for me. Those were my knee jerks. I know my brothers in Christ. I wasn't alone. But man, we rolled that window up. I actually rolled, we rolled it down and said, man, we'll give you some Tylenol and some water since you dehydrated. And this man, he just, he didn't need water and Tylenol. He needed a ride. He was scared. As I thought about it, he went over there and he was about to get out an emergency locator and send a text out to his wife and kids and say, it didn't go well. I'm trying to get home, but it's not, it's not going well. He was about to do that. Well, by the grace of God, the, the Holy Spirit convicted me and the brothers and we, we helped this man out and we drove him. I tried really hard not to put this in the sermon, but as I prepared this morning and I was thinking about it, I really think deep down my preferences were there, but there's also, I'm just working through, I think some conviction of God that there was still a little bit of a desire to trust my plan, my preservation, my comfort, my way rather than God's. So much so that I almost blew right past an opportunity. We halfway shared the gospel with those guys. We talked to them. They said they were Christians. They professed faith. We got to share with them, but we really were coming from a place of having told them no to try to make up ground. I bring that up to you not to, not to just be all about me, but we've all been there where our criticizing may not, you know, it may not get as public and ugly as these men in this text here, but we need this reminder, I think, just like them. God's word informs Peter. I'm not tooting a horn here. I'm telling you, when we rolled that window up, for me personally, I thought about the Good Samaritan. I literally had just read that a couple weeks ago in my Bible reading plan, and Jesus teaching on the the Good Samaritan. I was just like, I'm literally disobeying that right now, and the Lord was so good. What, What am I telling in that God's word? It informs Peter here. It corrects Peter, and then look what it did, man. It led him to help others. Second application. If you don't have some bigotry or variations of it today it's keeping you from more obedience, people will criticize you for following Jesus. So expect it and be ready for it. What made Peter get ready with charity for these brothers? Again, it was a willingness to receive the clarity of God's word in his own life. You know, we want God to work through the things we feel we have mastered in our personal lives as believers but often God wants to work through the blind spots you have be humble like Peter I think he spoke with such clarity and charity towards these men because he didn't waste his journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem this brother was turning over and over in his head you know his humility led him to meditate on God's goodness in saving Cornelius That led him, I think, to be ready to love these harsh, embittering Christians in Jerusalem. And church, we need to be the people that are like Peter. There's going to be a lot of people that stand up in the name of gay Christianity or white Christianity or black Christianity or cowboy Christianity or certain descriptor of Christianity. And they overemphasize those things. And if we meet them, they're in bitterness and they're moving toward maybe losing the gospel. And as we, if we meet them with a bunch of arguments and Twitter posts and angry, quick, quick one liners, we're not going to see the results that Peter sees. What does he see here? What's the result? Well, that's where we conclude. Okay, the conclusion's short. Criticisms create clarity and charity, right? The clarity is seen in this charity here. Now, what does charity conclude? Let's see it together in closing, okay? Charity creates conviction. Conviction in this community. Look and read with me again, verse 17 and 18. This is so beautiful. Peter says in conclusion to them If then God, if God then, gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? You hear that humility? It's honest, right? It's a good question. He said, he says to these men, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, check this out. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter's question is surgically precise. In it, in his question, he has explicitly said what the gospel and here, excuse me, I'm sorry. He has, he has explicitly said what gossip and hearsay has left out of the mouth of these Jewish Christians the whole time. This entire time, all this interacting, the comment that they make is only concerned with what? With the outside issues, Right? How Peter looks. They're concerned how Peter looks as a Jew going to unclean men. They've been concerned with how they will look if they begin to include Gentiles in their life, which seems to be what he's saying is happening. All this has dominated the story until this sentence in your Bible. God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When this truth confronts Christians, It is to be a trump card, a a final word, an end all of any partiality they want to show. Now get this. earlier Earlier in our service today, you heard me read Genesis 22, 17 and 18 to you. There, God, in that 17 and 18 in Genesis 22, God promised to do this work. In our verses 17 and 18, people that should have received it do. They see all the nations right here fulfilled. God has the power by the power of his Holy Spirit and he's gifted these dead to sin Gentiles new life in Christ. They have believed the gospel. They have believed God that he is the creator. They have Believed that he created a perfect world that fell into sin because of man's stubborn rebellion against him. And they have believed that God made a way for them in Christ Jesus, the God-man who bridges the gap by his obedience and his willingness to die on a tree cursed under the law, cursed for their sin. They have believed that he has beat death and risen. They have trusted him by faith. They have placed their faith in him to repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That leads to life, this passage says, to eternal life because that Jesus Christ who's in heaven will come back. And they have believed this gospel. This truth has a profound effect on those who were beginning to err. If the Jewish Christian was starting to turn to his Jewishness, this truth right here at the end, we see spoken in what? In in charity, with clarity, produced what, man? It produced conviction. That's beautiful, (coughs) y'all. Apply this with me in closing today. Here are a group of stubborn believers who have started to veer into secondary issues in a way that threatens the primary issue of how someone is saved. How often do you and I do the same thing in our own hearts? Or, together, with our favorite petty issue, or even serious sin, the quickest way to be reconciled to the Lord in those situations where our personal sin or our bigotry or temptations lead us to think wrongly or act wrongly to others, It's to walk in humble repentance ourselves. You see, these Christians, they encounter the truth, and how do they react? Look at the text, brother and sister. It says, when they heard these things, what things? When they heard the truth that God saves despite what they think is important, or who they think deserves it, or who they think they are better than, the truth that God gave them the exact same love and care, when he should have sent them straight to hell for all their sin, but he didn't. So he gave his son for these others that his spirit may teach them. And when they heard this, it says what? They fell silent. Sometimes right response to God is no response at all. Be still, be quiet. Hush your soul in its rebellion. James says it like this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. How? And receive with meekness. Meek people don't speak a lot, right? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's what James says. They need this meekness and I would wager today that some of us do as well. When you hear the things of God that take precedence over your preference, I hope you repent of your sinful handling of your preference. Often that means you Shut your mouth. It's not rude, right? Hope you don't take it that way. It's clear. It's an example. You were recreated in Christ by the Holy Spirit's power according to the words of eternal life. Will you now live by some other words? No. When that word is spoken, repentance happens. You begin to use your two ears and your one mouth in the right proportion in that way. You listen more than you speak. How else did they repent? The next step's beautiful. After that silence, they were able to glorify God. They glorified God. what they do? They glorify God in a way they couldn't before, nor could they fathom it. That's what, that's what a beautiful and lively faith in God does. It sees a new way to glorify God as the real source of life. A soul that is truly satisfied in God is seeking the repentance that leads to eternal life. That is the idea of the, words, uh, the word life here in this text, life now and forever. Their repentance gives them insight into the hope, into the sunlight of heaven, which is an uninterrupted sharing in the glory of God. Can you glorify God with them this morning, church? I hope so. Is there repentance needed for you? Is there a mission for you to be convicted about and pursue an obedience like Peter? I believe so. The good news about this text and what we're about to sing is is it starts and it ends with the gospel. It's awesome. So me and you are going to get to sing this morning. As I pray, we're going to, after that, we're going to sing about the glorious mystery that it is that God has saved us and that he continues to save others. May it be a correction, like a chiropractor. May it adjust the, the, the kinks in our soul, the bigotry that remains. God wants to burn it all up for his glory. May we find ourselves silent until we can sing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for allowing the criticism of the circumcision party to creep up in the church. You allowed such selfishness. You allowed such bigotry, God. You allowed such audacity to think that they had the ability to keep you from saving Gentiles. You allowed it, God, to create what we see in Peter as a glorious testimony of clarity and charity and love. Help us to be like him, God, and less like the criticizers. Lord, may we all find, whether we are like them or we are like him, may we find that you, Jesus, have made a way in in how you've died and risen and empowered us by your spirit to live lives of conviction and community. good news, Lord, is that after 18, the church continues. We get our eyes set on a different place, the Father, the church in Jerusalem was strengthened in this moment just like it'll be strengthened in future problems, God, just like we can be strengthened today. So God, help us to battle the, our, the own criticisms that we have or we see around us, Lord. Help us, give us clarity. Give us, give us a charity that we need to live lives of conviction as Christ followers before a watching world. But today I pray for the personal side of it. If somebody here is struggling, God, with conviction, they've offended you, Or maybe they've been sinned against God and they're not dealing with criticism well. May we find as we sing again about the gospel, the hope of it, what a mysterious providence it is that you love us, God. Despite our indwelling sin, you still care for us, God. And you'll see us all the way till the end. Give us hope in that together as we sing sing loudly. And as we pray after that, God, may we be unified in our amens and may it translate into our obedience. In all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.